You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Okay, so yeah, wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. I've titled the sermon, Heaven on Earth. And that might seem a bit weird, or you might not know where that's coming from. We'll get there. What is your idea, your idea, of heaven on earth? What images come to your mind when you hear that phrase, heaven on earth? Maybe you're dreaming of, like, nice beaches, nice weather, no responsibility, Or perhaps your mind goes to good food, uh, good friendships, good rest. Or maybe you're one of those odd ones that's thinking of like skydiving and adventure and risk. That's your idea of heaven. What do you think God's idea of heaven is? What's his picture of heaven touching earth? So the answer to that question is what we're going to be considering this morning. In order to do that... We need to know a little bit of something else about the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. And I know it probably sounds weird to be talking about structure on the last sermon on the Sermon on the Mount today, but please bear with me. So the Sermon on the Mount is what's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a way of reasoning in Eastern thought. Like in the West, we usually reason in a linear way. We we start with our hypothesis, we build our argument, we end with our conclusion. We're starting here, getting there. In a chiasm, the conclusion or the climax of the argument is actually in the middle with mirrored arguments on both ways. So these arguments building to the climax and on this side, these ones flowing from it. So what's at the center of the chiasm of the Sermon on the Mount? What's the Lord's Prayer? It's the Lord's Prayer. And what's at the center of the Lord's Prayer? It's this phrase, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So everything in the sermon up to that point has been building to that. That God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And everything after that prayer is flowing from it. And that's the point of what Jesus has been saying to us these last many weeks as we've been rolling through the Sermon on the Mount. Everything's about that. That God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I just want you to keep that in your minds as we read this section, our section of scripture today. That Jesus, he wants four tastes of heaven on earth. And what we're looking at this morning is one of the ways that it will be accomplished. So you could turn to page 861 if you're not there yet in these Bibles. It's on page 861, the church Bibles. Matthew 7, 24. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe you've never come to church before, uh, like take one of these, just take it from the chair in front of you. It's our gift to you. And it's God's gift to you. It's his words to you. That's a huge gift, the God of the universe's words to you. Matthew 7, 24 to 8, 1 says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse, 
because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority, and not like their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Okay, so the the main and obvious point from this passage is that we are to obey the things we hear from Jesus. That's the point of all the warnings we've been looking at these last three weeks at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the, the clincher. That's, that's what it all revolves around. Hearing these words of Jesus and acting on them is the deciding factor as to whether your life is going to stand or fall. So Jesus wants heaven on earth. He wants the will of the Father done on earth as it is in heaven. So Christian obedience is actually heaven coming down to earth because heaven is obedient. You'll see that in your, the headings in your uh, bulletin. Heaven is obedient. Heaven is unshakable. Heaven is enduring. Heaven is obedient, unshakable, enduring. So let's consider what God thinks of when he thinks of heaven on earth. First, heaven is obedient. Heaven is a place of absolute, immediate, sincere obedience. At our house, we teach our kids to obey right away, all the way, with a good attitude. That's our obedience mantra. Because that's how God is to be obeyed. That's, it's how, the home is the training ground for obeying God in their lives as adults. And in heaven, God is obeyed like that. All day, every day. Like every cherubim is delighting to do his will. Every seraphim is bent on, on doing whatever God says, whenever he says it. Uh, the, the angels all live to fulfill his commands. And every redeemed saint there experiences what we long for in our hearts. Full and free obedience without the taint of sin. Heaven is the home of righteousness. Heaven is obedient. So... When a Christian hears these words of Jesus and acts on them, what has actually happened is that heaven has touched earth in the obedient Christian's body. Every obedient Christian is making God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven is obedient. The kingdom of heaven also comes as each Christian uh, does God's will as a part of a local church. The church is the coming kingdom. The church is the kingdom that Jesus is building in the world. Each local church is is an outpost of heaven. The obedient church is where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And doesn't it make sense? Like, shouldn't shouldn't the king have free reign in his own house? Uh, Shouldn't he be the one that tells us how to use our money, how to use our eyes, our tongues, our, our tithes, our prayers, we've looked at that in the Sermon on the Mount. And shouldn't those who uh, call upon his name and are called by his name be the ones who turn from evil to do good? Like, what do we have to do with the filth of this world? What do we have to do with keeping grudges, losing our tempers, enjoying sin? 
Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I wonder, though, if it strikes you how heavenly it is to obey, how otherworldly it is to do what Jesus says. Do you realize that nobody on earth except a Christian obeys God? Nobody. Romans 3 says that, not even one. We just looked at that a little bit ago in the history of redemption memorizing thing. Not even one. Except the ones who have come from death to life, spiritually, can even obey God. In Romans 8, 7, 8, we find that. It says the mindset of the flesh, so the flesh is everything we are without Christ. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And 1 John 5.3 tells us that for a Christian, God's commandments are not burdensome. So through faith in his son, God gives us a new heart and a new spirit and a new way. And we love it so. A non-Christian could do the things Jesus says, or like attempt them anyway, but they would hate it while they would do it. Or they would do it in a way to push themselves up, to promote themselves, to boast. Well, that's not the kind of obedience that fills heaven or the true church. That's not the kind of obedience that builds your life on a rock. The obedience that we're after is to trust that Jesus like, really knows what he's talking about. And to love him for telling it to us. And then go and faithfully do it. That, that's the the flavor of the obedience of the children of God, the the citizens of the kingdom. We are to study his manifesto, love it, and do it. Then we're on a rock. The most sure way to prove the validity of your faith is obedience. Look at the first word in our section today. If you look at it, verse 24, it says, Therefore, remember growing up, my youth pastor Stuck in my head. Whenever you see a therefore, you've got to figure out what it's there for. Pretty easy thing to remember. So we look back at Mark's section from last week in verse 21, starting there. You've got these people boasting about all this work that they've done for Jesus. They're like, we were prophesying Jesus in your name. We were casting out demons in your name. We were doing mighty works in your name. Our ministry was big time, Jesus. What's he say to them? Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Like, I never knew you. Yeah, oh, you were doing big things for me, powerful things, miraculous things, but you weren't my friends. You lived like I never gave you a law to follow. You built your life on sand, and now it's coming crashing down. Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, he will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Assurance of our faith, like assurance that we have a real faith, assurance that we have eternal life, it doesn't come from big power or big boasts. It comes from obedience. Your profession of faith, it actually means nothing if it isn't accompanied by a present and growing, even if it's just like at a crawling pace, but a present and growing obedience in the same direction. What's your projection? When you see Jesus, will he receive you as an obedient friend or reject you as a law-breaking stranger?
That's the warning Jesus is giving here. And many, many in this church need to honestly think about that. Because we elders, we've done a lot of counseling in this church that's fallen on deaf ears or disobedient ears. What's your attitude toward correction? What's your attitude toward the words that Jesus says? What's your attitude towards submitting to the law and the word of God? Take Jesus seriously. He's, he's not kidding around. He doesn't lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And some of you should be greatly encouraged today because you can echo the very words of the Son of God who said, I have come to do your will, O God. Like your greatest delight is to make your father smile. Well, be encouraged and keep building on that rock. Be a foretaste of the obedient heaven in this crooked and depraved generation. The second reason that, heaven, uh, that a Christian's obedience is heaven on earth is because heaven is unshakable. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful. The contrast we're given in Matthew 7 is between an unshakable house and a shaky house. What, what, what makes one house unshakable is that it's prone to obedience. Not that it has perfect obedience, that it's prone to obedience. That's its lean. And what makes the other house shaky is that it's prone to disobedience. I want you to see that in the text. Especially like when someone starts talking in church about obey, obey. You might just pass them off as a legalist. I want you to see that that is what Jesus is saying here. To obey. This isn't just my spin on it. It's what Jesus is actually saying. So, so look at it with me. Both houses are ascribed the same description at the beginning, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine, both of them get that description. That's said to both groups. Both hear. Both hear the same. It's not that, you know, the one group heard a veiled or half message and the other one heard a clear and full message. No, they both heard the same message. They're in a level playing field in that regard. The difference is in their response. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them. Obedience is the difference. The point Jesus is making is that obedience is the rock-solid life. Yes, it's it's a life built on the rock of Christ and on the rock of his teaching, but that rock's no good to you if you won't obey it. Like, obedience is how you anchor. We talked a lot about anchors in the songs. Obedience is how you anchor to the rock of Christ. Obedience is the only way, like, to build an unshakable house on the rock of Christ. But I also want you to see that in the Greek. So Matthew, this book of Matthew, it's like, you know, around 2,000 years old. It was written in Greek. In the English, we just have the same word for pounded. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house. It's just pounded, pounded for both houses. But in the unshakable house in the Greek, it's propisto. Sorry, propipto. They're very similar. So, prospipto. Prospipto means to rush against, to beat upon, like to pound, but also to fall forward in homage or supplication at something's feet. Whereas the shaky house is proscopto, so proscopto, proscopto. Proscopto means, very similarly, to rush upon, beat against, also to be made to stumble by a thing, as to be induced by sin. So maybe 
maybe that was too quick going over that, but what we see in that slight variation in those two Greek words is this, that temptation must bow at the Christian's feet because they're prone to obedience, whereas temptation makes the one prone to disobedience bow at its feet. Like, both houses hear the the word of Christ. Both houses get pounded by the storm, which are temptations to sin. That's what the storm is. But because the one house is prone to obedience and does what it hears from Jesus and is therefore building on a rock, temptation must bow in homage to its master, who is the obedient Christian. And on the other side, because the other house is prone to disobedience and doesn't act on what it hears from Jesus and is therefore building on sand, it, being a Christian in name only, will bow to its master, which is temptation and sin. But there may be many stumblings in a real Christian's life. Many times when the storm is like shaking the house and creaking it and it's groaning under the pressure, maybe a few windows are even going to get blown out. Uh, Maybe some siding is going to blow off in the wind. But because it's anchored to the rock by being prone to to obedience, by acting on the words of Jesus, it's not going to ultimately collapse before temptation. Not to the point of coming crashing down. In that way, our lives are like a display of heaven on earth because heaven's unshakable. It has a foundation, foundations whose builder and architect is God, God himself. And Peter's repentance when he denied Jesus is a good picture of this. He didn't ultimately come crashing down. Whereas in contrast, a fake Christian's life is a display of hell on earth. Hell is described as a place of eternal destruction and a bottomless pit. Like there's just destruction and misery in hell. And there's no bottom. There's nothing to anchor to. And that's just like sand. You, you can't set anchors in sand. It doesn't work. There's nothing to grab onto. It doesn't hold together. When the rain falls and the rivers rise, all that foundation gets washed away along with the house. The house prone to disobedience will collapse with a great crash, never to rise again. And Judas is a picture of that. And the last reason a Christian's obedience is heaven on earth is because heaven's enduring. Heaven endures. Daniel 7.14 says that Jesus is given a dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and one that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Or Psalm 10.16, the Lord's king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Or Luke 1.33, he will reign, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Or lastly, in Revelation 11.15, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Heaven is enduring. Well, in like manner, the house that's anchored to obeying the enduring king of the enduring kingdom will also endure. The house prone to obedience endures. 
Like the storms beat against it. The winds rattle and shake it. The floods even wash over it. But it won't come crashing down because it's anchored. It will endure. It will ultimately and finally endure on the path to obedience, path of obedience. It will finally and ultimately endure in the things that Jesus says and says to do. It's a heaven-like house, and heaven endures, therefore, it must endure. Matthew 24, 13 shows us this, and a few more. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or Luke 8, 15. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it by enduring, and they produce fruit. Or on to Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 10.39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Revelation 2.10. Don't be afraid about what you're about to suffer. Look. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you'll experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And there's many, many more verses that say the same thing. A Christian endures to the end. Do you remember last week how Mark pointed out in in the fruit section that fruit takes time to grow? We can't always see the good fruit or the bad fruit in someone's life because fruit just takes time to grow. It starts as a flower, and it ends up as a fruit, and there's time in between. Well, it's the same with endurance. Endurance takes time. That's the essence and nature of enduring. Endurance to the end takes a lot of time. Like, it takes a lifetime. So how somebody starts out, that's not indicative of, of true faith or not. It's how they finish that validates that. Like, think again of the house on sand. Go back to the house on sand. The house on sand, it took a lot of pounding. Like, the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew. They're pounding that house. It endured for a while. It was standing for a while. It was really trying for a while. But at some point or another, it comes crashing down, because it was actually prone in its heart to disobedience. It doesn't endure to the end, and it collapses with a great crash, never to rise again. Endurance to the end is, is the mark of true Christianity. Enduring is what Christians do. It, it's what God causes them to do. That's, here's the encouragement. It's what God causes them to do. John Piper has said, God will keep you by causing you to do keeping things. God will keep you by causing you to do keeping things. In the little book of Jude, it kind of displays this interworking. Jude starts out by addressing Christians as those kept for Jesus Christ, kept by God for Jesus Christ. So God's doing that. Then at the end, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, a thing we're doing. And then finally, in the blessing at the end, he says, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and in great joy. So endurance is a thing that is both we and God together. Endurance is a promise of the new covenant. 
It's an everlasting covenant. And Jeremiah says, I've made with you an everlasting covenant that I'll never turn away from you, and I'll put the fear of me in you so you won't ultimately turn away from me. It's a promise. God will keep you by causing you to do keeping things. So in in conclusion, Jesus wants heaven on earth in his church. He wants the will of the Father done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants heaven touching earth in each obedient Christian's life. He wants us to display the unshakableness and the endurance of the coming kingdom. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we must hear and act on from Jesus. Matthew wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because he's teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So what about, what about you? What about us, Calvary? Are we astonished at Jesus' teaching? So I have two homework items for you to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. Two homework items. Read back over the Sermon on the Mount. And do it a few times. Read it, read it all in one sitting, the whole thing, all together. Have you ever heard anybody talk like Jesus? Just take it all in together. This is what the Lord of the land, the one with authority, the judge of all the earth, commands his people to do. He's not suggesting, he's not asking, he's commanding. This is what we must hear and act on to have a house on the rock. The second homework item is something Mark brought up last week. Read through 1 John. I would say read through 1 John a chapter a day for four weeks. 1 John, chapter a day for four weeks. It was written so Christians could know they have eternal life. And that's the thing Jesus is stressing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. Like, make sure. Make sure you know. And John wrote 1 John so Christians could know. Or find out that Find out they could know that they're Christians or find out, oh, I don't have a real faith. And they could call out to the only one who could save them. Either way, it's a good, a good ending. Matthew says after his sermon, when he came down from the mountain, large crowds were following Jesus. Like, large crowds followed him for his miracles. Large crowds followed him because he could make food out of nothing. Large crowds followed him because they wanted to make him king by force. Large crowds followed him for this or that self-serving reason. But after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was like 120 people waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Not a large crowd. When the crowd saw what Jesus was really about, they left him. And only a handful of real believers remained. So what about you? Are you a real believer? Do you have a biblical assurance of that claim? Not, I feel something really strong. Not, I did something many years ago that made me think I was a Christian. Do you have a biblical assurance of that claim? So read through First John, wrestle with it, pray through it, talk with one of the elders or a mature Christian you know about it. Hopefully it will confirm your faith. If it doesn't, then read the Gospel of John, because John says he wrote that one, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name, eternal life, heavenly life. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.